0: This is the Private Practice Workshop Podcast with John Clark, Episode 21. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. David Craig of Spruce Health. Spruce is a really exciting new communication platform um, that is completely HIPAA compliant. I know a lot of therapists are wondering whether or not the way that they're communicating with both their clients and also internally with their teams is um, is in, in violation or in compliance with HIPAA laws. I learned a ton in this episode uh, about all the basics of the laws and also what we need to know in terms of how we are actually communicating. So we've got a great episode for you, let's dive in. All right. All right, Dr. David Craig is on the show with us today. David, thanks so much for being here. Um, we've been we connected a while back, and then we connected again somewhat recently. Um, and I'm I'm just excited to have you on the show. I think this is going to be an episode unlike any other because we really haven't dived in to to any of this stuff yet on the show. So I'm I'm excited to have you here today.
1: Yeah, John, thank you so much for having me as well, and uh, I was uh, ecstatic when you reached back out. It's always great to talk more to our therapist community. It's one of the most sort of uh, involved, vibrant uh, segments that we have using Spruce, and uh, I always love dealing with therapists.
0: Yeah, that's that's good. Um, I think people generally like like working with therapists. We're, we're, we tend to be a pretty f- approachable bunch. Um, <laughs> we can also be neurotic, yeah. though. So, there, <laughs> there's also a strong theme of therapists who became therapists because um, they, had their own, they had or have their own problems that have been helped through therapy. So, that's always an interesting dynamic. Um, well, David, you are a, a medical doctor. You're in San Francisco, right? Um, tell folks a little bit about yeah, kind of I'm in who San you Francisco. are and what you do.
1: Sure, uh, I'm an emergency medicine physician. Um been doing that about seven years now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I still do that part-time. And then I'm medical director for Spruce Health. Uh, We're a medical communications company, and it's a little bit broader than that. We like to say that we're focusing on all the care that you want to deliver outside of the physical walls of the office. And a lot of that takes the form of uh, medical communications in all of its different uh, facets. So whether that's email or secure messaging, secure team communication, phone, voicemail, texting, Mm -hmm. telemedicine, sort of we cover all of that and try to make that really accessible, easy to use for patients and providers, extremely easy to understand, HIPAA compliant, you know, all the, uh, all the major aspects there. That's what we really try to cover. So I try to keep up my uh, clinical practice and then have the uh, business angle on things too.
0: Yeah, say, say more about that. We'll, we'll get back to the product here in a minute, but say more about kind of um, having living in both worlds there between your actual clinical practice and um, working in tech.
1: Yeah, it was a, a plan that was a long time in the making. I actually started in the uh, the tech side of things. As a teenager, I was doing the the computer side of stuff and doing web development around the original dot-com boom and uh, decided to put that on hold so that I could go to college. And while I was there, I got really interested in uh, medicine, realized that uh, a large part of me would always want to be a doctor and be able to have those skills and help out the people that are close to me. So uh pursued that. And the intention was always to uh, go as far as I could tolerate in the medical training system, which I, I think is a phrase that everyone listening to this will understand. And then, uh, eventually loop it back into, uh, uh tech and startups and whatnot, because I, I valued the ability of technological, uh, solutions sure. to really create a quick, uh, lasting, strong impact on problems that, you know, are especially prevalent in fields like medicine that we haven't tackled yet. And it turned out that, that, uh, you know, I was able to get through the entirety of the training without completely losing my mind. And, <laughs> and I enjoy now being able to uh, to keep one foot in the sort of active practice of medicine yeah. and uh, and then the other in, in, you know, a day job sort of uh, trying to slowly improve the tools that uh, providers have available to them for mm-hmm. for care.
0: Yeah, what an interesting journey you've had to, to kind of get here and to still do both things. I don't I don't know a lot of doctors that have um this other kind of career going on, but I think it's really neat um for, for you to be so in touch with both worlds. Do you do you know other doctors who have um you know, kind of similar roles like you do?
1: Yeah, it's not super common. There are a few. I mean, I'm in the Bay Area. So if I'm going to find them, it's going to be here. So I guess yeah. I, I might uh, I might over index on it a little bit. But it is possible if people are interested in and yeah. it's it certainly possible. I think my field and fields like therapy could potentially lend themselves well because you can sort of dial up and down your practice volume to suit whatever else is going sure. on in your life. And sure. uh yeah, that, that's something that's important, you know, because I can sort of hop in and do a, a shift or two a week and, and stay pretty fresh while having plenty of time for the business. So, yeah. you know, yeah, it's, it's almost a separate topic than we set out <laughs> to talk about. But I'm, <laughs> I love talking about that one, too. Yeah. If, if yeah. people are, are interested in, in getting into tech or side projects or that kind of thing, I'll, I'm always happy to uh, to uh, contribute to that, you know, just sure. just shoot me an email on it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, wh- when I was in San Francisco and I had built my first practice there, I actually got involved with a startup, um, uh, just kind of fell into it, where we were building it, basically an algorithm for matching uh, clients with a therapist, almost like a dating, a dating uh, site would do. Um, yeah, it makes sense. That's, that startup is still kind of working on things. But it was interesting because I started to kind of live in both worlds as well. Um, I don't know if you watch the show Silicon Valley.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've seen
0: it. <laughs> there's the, uh, yeah, there's the doctor there, um, who like, in, you know, in the middle of consulting his patients starts pitching them his app idea, which I always think is <laughs> so, so great. And so hilarious. There's like an app that can tell you if you're about to have a panic attack and he's <laughs> looking for investors and, uh, his patients are really just there to like get the help they need. But, uh, <laughs> it's just, that's a great show and a funny, a funny, uh, situation.
1: Yeah, there are, there are some things that show gets directly correct.
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah, there's, they know what they're doing. Um, well, yeah, so I I don't even know how I came across you guys, but it must have been last summer when I maybe just kind of stumbled across Spruce and was like, wow, this is a really amazing solution. And um, I think it's, it looked like at the time it was like pretty geared toward medical practitioners, but what... A great tool also for mental health practitioners, given that we've got to follow the same HIPAA guidelines that medical practitioners do as well. So maybe just introduce us to um, the Spruce platform and then also how, how it came to be. I'm still interested in that, kind of how things started.
1: Yeah, uh- I, th- I think that's a pretty cool story, too, and I think it speaks to, to why the platform is good. Uh, maybe maybe we can start there. Sure. It started about four years ago. Uh, we began as a direct-to-patient uh, telemedicine company, as in we were getting the providers, and we were also going and, and marketing and collecting patients, too. And we were doing our own telemedicine effectively, and we still do that in one wing of the company, and I run the practice group that, that does that. And inherent in that, we had to build ourselves internal tools that allowed us to be able to run an efficient modern practice. So we had to build the capacity to have secure messaging with the patients. We had to build the same uh, feature set to allow us to talk to each other securely. All that kind of stuff um, we had to build. And then after a few years of that, what we were hearing from patients and from uh, providers was that they wanted to be able to use the same type of technology with their existing sort of uh, in-person providers. And we sort of pushed it off for a little while and then we eventually gave in and made a platform version of our tools so that any medical practice can adopt the same internal tooling that we built for our own operations and perfected over a couple of years. And then since then we've been expanding that. So now what Spruce has become is this extensible platform that allows you to deliver this like really modern type of care at a distance so if you've got someone sitting in your office in front of you it's easy how you communicate you just talk mm-hmm. but in any other situation in life you have to think harder about it is it going to be email is it going to be texting is it going to be a phone call is it going to be video telemedicine is it going to be secure messaging all of that and we we really integrate that into one platform that can handle all of those things and it puts them in a unified inbox so you don't have to go searching through your texts on your phone here and your secure messaging in a a portal of an EHR there and, you know, that kind of thing. You don't have to worry about signing different types of business associate agreements, which we can talk about later. You just sign one with us. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if you have guidance that you need on specifically how you do certain things, like I've mentioned texting a couple times and probably a few of you are scratching your heads and wondering how can you do that with HIPAA and patient privacy. You know, that's the type of thing that we spend a lot of time thinking about and we spend a lot of time with lawyers talking about too. So we, we can give, you know, it's not, perfect legal guidance, but I actually think it's pretty good. And that's one thing that I've become really uh, intensely driven by in the last couple of years is reading up on HIPAA and trying to understand all the angles on that. And now I love talking to people about the specific uh, things there. I love telling them the good news about how they can talk to patients and and you know which things are legal which things are ethical how they can make that work for their practice and and that's something that we really take a lot of pride in and spruce and i think we do a great job it's uh it's a fantastic medical communications technology i know i'm like the most biased person on the planet (laughs) to be talking about this but but i do think we do a good job and i I think it came out of the fact that we did and we do use this exact same stuff ourselves.
0: it's interesting um well you know as as Communication evolves, and we have more ways of, of interacting with clients and c- clients, or some people will say patients, right? Um, in our sure. field, a lot of times we say clients, but they will um, they will want to reach out to their therapist in a number of different mediums, right? And we a lot of times as a practitioner, we want to offer those mediums. Um, it's it, it enhances their service. It's a it's a higher level of service when you can do that. Um, and, and at the same time, it poses more risk, right? When you open up these right. different channels for communication, can can you kind of step back and, from a really basic level, talk about um, talk about why it's important to protect your communication in this way, right? And I think a lot, a lot of therapists, obviously, we have some segment of our education um, dedicated to HIPAA, but it might've been four years ago when we were in graduate school. And the basics might just be, we know that that information's confidential, but we don't know anything else. We don't know what it means for something to be encrypted. We don't know like what the real risk is if we are texting a client or calling them or emailing them through our Gmail. So maybe just back up and talk about kind of HIPAA essentials real quick.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Maybe let's go over a couple terms real quick. So we've got HIPAA. Sure, we've got HIPAA itself, which is the uh, you know legislation that was passed originally in 1996, and that was updated by the High Tech Act. So those two things, when you hear about HIPAA and High Tech, that's federal law. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then sometimes you hear about the HIPAA Omnibus Rule. And I, I know I used to get those things confused before I started really studying this a few years ago. So you have HIPAA and High Tech, which have updated the actual laws on a federal level. And then what you have is the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, mm-hmm. is the uh, executive department that's in charge of implementing those laws. And the way that they do that is by making a set of regulations. Uh, and those in their most recent updated form are called the HIPAA omnibus rule. So that, that's the difference between those terms. So you've okay. got this set of federal legislation that has become regulations and that's the entire body of things that uh, that covered entities need to need to follow. And I, the term covered entity has a very specific definition from uh, the federal level. It's basically. Uh, It can cover health insurance plans, healthcare like clearinghouses and providers uh, who are engaging in certain electronic transactions. There's a specific list of these. I have a blog article that goes into detail, but Mm -hmm. uh, probably not something that we need to get in the weeds about here. It's usually safest to assume that if you're practicing modern medicine, you're probably a covered entity under HIPAA. And the other angle there is that a lot of states have now adopted their own kind of HIPAA-esque legislation, too. So even if federal HIPAA does not apply to you, there may be state patient privacy laws that have to you have to abide by. How would you go about by.
0: finding out what those are? Because I think that might be new to a lot of listeners as well.
1: Yeah, I would. You know, there's there's usually for a lot of states, there's someone has written a blog article somewhere that'll give you a sort of a starting set of links to the relevant legislation in your state. Um, I wrote like a general piece on a uh, on. Uh, HIPAA and state law that kind of points you to a couple resources where you can get started reading. Sure. Uh, so if you search around the Spruce blog for like HIPAA state law or what you need to know about HIPAA in your state or something, I think that that should come up. Um, but it's it's the type of thing where if you have someone that you talk to about starting a practice in your state, you might get in touch with them or you know a health law lawyer in your state, that kind of thing. It's usually not you know crazily more onerous than the general baseline of HIPAA regulations that mm-hmm. exists. Some of the reporting deadlines and other things may be a little tighter if there's like a breach of protected health information, hopefully stuff that's not happening to you anyway. Gotcha. Um, but it's, it's worth uh, considering that those laws might exist. <clears throat> and, and the point being basically that it's, even if you think you're not a covered entity on the national level, sometimes it's safer just to act like one anyway. Sure. So, So that's sort of the the foundation there. And then HIPAA itself is quite large and has a number of parts. Uh, Many of them don't interact directly with, you know, a solo practitioner, especially in mental health. Mm -hmm. But there are two big sections that almost everyone on a provider level is going to have to care about. Mm -hmm. And colloquially by HHS, those are named the HIPAA privacy rule and the HIPAA security rule. Okay. And those are, you've probably heard those terms before. They're just names, uh, sort of semi-formal names for sections of the HIPAA law. The privacy law is kind of the crux of HIPAA, uh, at least from us uh, as a provider you know, group. That yeah. is what's defining PHI, protected health information, and gotcha. telling you what you can and can't do with it and what you must do with it. And it also defines rights for patients in terms of access to that PHI, how they can get access, how they can request amendments to it, you know, that kind of stuff. And that applies to PHI in any form, whether it's stuff you're saying out loud, whether it's written on paper, whether it's electronic, all the things in there are PHI in general. And then the security rule is is a little bit more uh, interesting, especially as uh, we continue advancing and everything becomes more and more electronic, because the security rule deals <clears throat> primarily and specifically with electronic. PHI, right? And there's very particular definitions of that which become relevant uh, to medical communication too. But the point is, the security rule has a lot more specific stuff to say about how you're handling PHI. And when when we got into this segment here, you were asking me, you know, to to discuss the impacts on texting and, and right. that kind of stuff where it goes from this sort of nebulous fear over, um, oh, this seems confidential and I'm texting about it to a more specific, why should you be worried? And the answer to why should you be worried in most cases is the HIPAA security rule, gotcha. because that's the one where you have specific requirements for, um, <clears throat> Let me back up for one second. In HIPAA, we have three t- categories of uh, safeguards, they call them. There's administrative safeguards, physical safeguards, and technical safeguards. And you see that language pop up over and over again. And those are the ways that they're telling healthcare providers to protect patients' information. They, when you say a physical safeguard, they want to make sure that you know your office has locks. And if you have computers, they're bolted down. And, you know, like the, those kind of literally physical right. safeguards. You have a disaster backup plan. So if your office burns down you're not going to lose everyone's records that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. administrative safeguards are like you have processes in place that are going to safeguard information you have you know written policies that staff don't leave their computers logged in that you're not you know putting up a big LCD screen into the waiting room with everyone's name and chief complaint like that kind of stuff uh And and also administrative safeguards would be like you're signing a business associate agreement with anyone who's handling your patient's PHI. That's an administrative safeguard, too. Uh, And then technical safeguards. That's that third category of safeguards. And the security rule gets really specific about some of these. So for... For some of them, and you can look this up in the Code of Federal Regulations, it's at 45 CFR 164, Section 312. <laughs> I've looked at it a few times. <laughs> did you, was
0: that from memory, or did you have that written down?
1: Yeah, that one's from memory. Wow, but, that's impressive. Yeah, well, you see 164 enough, and it <laughs> sort of burns its way in there. Uh, but that that's the section that lists a number of... Um, some more specific safeguards that, that you're going to want to look into and that's telling gotcha. you that's, you, you mentioned encryption and decryption which is why I'm, I'm coming to this because people wonder reasonably where in the law that actually is and this yeah. is one of the sections where you can find it gotcha. uh, and if you just type that crazy uh, incantation of numbers and letters into Google it will pop up for you as well uh, basically this section has a, a regulation for encryption and decryption and it broadly, it it wants you to make sure that every every time you're storing information or transmitting information, it's going to have appropriate technical safeguards. Gotcha. And there's a subtle distinction in HIPAA over whether requirements are absolutely required, uh, or whether they are what they call addressable. Hmm. And encryption is technically an addressable requirement, which means that you need to think through it and you need to provide your rationale for supporting or not supporting it. Okay. But there, there could potentially be situations where you've it's not feasible for you to support it. And the benefit to your organization and your patients is such that it's worth not doing that and you can come up with an alternative and you document this whole thing. And and that in itself can be protective under HIPAA too. But the giant caveat to that is that in 2017, for most modern practices, there's not really a super legitimate reason to not support encryption technologies because they're pretty prevalent and pretty easy to use for the most part. So, there, yeah, there's some
0: kind of room for interpretation of that law, depending on your practice and what's available to you. But the bottom line is, because there's so many resources available for encrypted services, um, it's you, you should be on it, basically. Well, can, I think so. I wonder if we could kind of narrow into communication, because obviously we could spend sure. hours on... Um, on the, the, the different types of security and even physical stuff or how many times you know under how many locks do my documents need to be in person <laughs> and i know right. you also did a webinar on this recently so that might be another good resource for people uh, and we can link to that at the at the end of the show or whatever um sure. but at if, at a real basic level if when i'm communicating with my clients um what what do i need to know
1: So, you know, interestingly, I'm going to start not with a technical thing there, but with a systems thing. What you need to know, the one thing you need to know is how do your clients, how do your patients want to communicate with you? What is their preference? And the reason I say that is because um, HHS has been very clear in several different forms of guidance that they've written about HIPAA that patient preference is going to dominate over okay. these other legal considerations. Interesting.
0: So let's say it's email.
1: Yeah. So if a patient wants to email with you, and by email, let's be clear here, we mean totally insecure, regular email, Gmail. not a bunch of, yeah. right, sure, or or anything. Just yeah. email, not the you've got a secure attachment, click here to waste an hour of your time trying <laughs> to open it. Yeah. You know, like the none of that sort of thing. Uh, HHS has very clearly said that if your patient prefers their health information in that format, that electronic format, and they're aware to your, you know, reasonable knowledge of the security risks, and you have advised them of alternatives that you have available that are more secure, and they still prefer the other method, you're in the clear. Wow. Hippo okay. Ways.
0: So that's super interesting. Um, would you need them to sign something that says, you know, you're, you're agreeing to communicate in this, uh, you know, kind of unsecured way?
1: I would get them to. Uh So uh, need is a little strong because it's just sort of the only thing that matters is their preference and their consent. But I think it makes it a lot more ironclad and sort of verifiable if you if you have them sign it. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. You could just do it electronically if you're sure that who you're talking to is the patient and that represents their sort of uh, correct. You know, uh, deep down judgment in a normal frame of mind. But probably the better way to do it is just when you're, uh, you know, bringing a new patient into your practice and you're having them sign your forms and yeah, whatnot in their, their first office visit. Something. Yeah, ha- have a sheet for how do you want to talk to me, and have have okay. them have different options available.
0: So let me ask you this: uh, most therapists are gonna, they, a, a lot of therapists, if not most, probably use email right now to communicate with their clients without any sort of agreement or any sort of real thought about it. And a lot of us will have like a disclaimer in our email signature, right? That's like this this information is not secured. Um, if you have an emergency, call 911, stuff like that. I think we just kind of put that paragraph in there or copy it from someone else's email signature. I'm wondering if something there um, kind of uh, holds any water in terms of this
1: stuff. So the thing that could be protective there is that HHS has given guidance that if a patient initiates a conversation on an insecure channel, that's Mm -hmm. a type of implied preference or consent. So if a patient is the one reaching out to you with a text or an email or that kind of thing, there's some coverage there. You have to still have a reasonable assurance that that patient understands what they're doing. So if you have a, you know. Uh, not to be ageist, but a, you know, a 75 year old or something reaching out to you on uh, email, Mm -hmm. you know, if they're, if you don't have some reason to think that they have like a deeper technical knowledge of email and understand the security limitations, which they might, but it's just a little less likely, then you should still apprise them of that. But if they've reached out to you that way, you have some coverage there and having an email signature that reminds everyone consistently that the, the medium is inherently flawed you know, that's protective. I think that it's much more protective just to get it out of the way once, get people to state their consent and preferences, and then you don't have to have a bulky signature constantly.
0: Well, what, and and what about the actual content that is being communicated? So a lot of therapists will also say, you know, we reserve email and maybe text or something only for scheduling and rescheduling of appointments. So I think there's some, something there where therapists assume that that's that's not a big deal or that's not in violation of of anything HIPAA because we're just talking about scheduling.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing question and a super great point. Uh, The the heart of that is correct. The sentiment that if you can find a way to talk to someone about matters that do not rise to the level of protected health information, which has a specific definition, then you can use whatever you want to communicate that. Now, uh, the deeper point there, though, is that I think that especially within mental health, almost anything you can talk about is going to qualify as PHI. Uh, So PHI in general. Is uh, personally identifiable health information about someone related to their past, present, or future sort of medical conditions. Uh, and if you are specifically a mental health practitioner, and that's all you do, in my opinion, uh, having someone have knowledge that you're scheduling or rescheduling an appointment—that is personally identifiable health information. You know, if you right. were a general right. practice, urgent care clinic emailing people about a flu shot or something, maybe that does not rise to the level of PHI because mm-hmm. you're just recommending that everyone by government guidance get a flu shot or sure. that kind of thing. But, but I think for mental health practitioners, that bar is significantly higher.
0: Yeah, because I, there's a little bit of common sense here, which is if you're communicating in an insecure way with your your, your patients, even about scheduling, it's kind of implicit that this, this person is receiving services from you.
1: Right. Right. That 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 part. Hundred percent.
0: Yeah. That that it's just kind of obvious. So I I don't know. Just to kind of uh, try to simplify it for people listening, I I think you know what David is saying is that if you're communicating through, let's say, text or Gmail or whatever it is about scheduling with your clients, and you're you're thinking, well, if it's just scheduling, then it's not it's not PHI. Well, it sounds like it probably is, right? So if you're going to implement some security. you know, kind of um, uh, features to your practice, you might as well consider that PHI if you, if you really want to be kind of um, safe about it.
1: Yeah, I I think so. And honestly, we we talked about having administrative processes that make Mm -hmm. your data secure. One administrative thing you can do is just decide that we're either going to get patient's consent and not care what we send them over what channel because they're fine with it. Or we're going to communicate entirely securely about everything. And then you don't have to lose sleep at night wondering if your office staff or you accidentally sent some PHI on a channel you didn't mean to. Just divide the two. For sure.
0: David, also talk to us a little bit about um, communicating within your group. So a lot of folks listening, they have group practices, or maybe it's just a solo practitioner and an administrative assistant, right? Um, Right. Who may or may not even be in the state, right? What, What do we need to know about communicating internally with your team?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there are efficiency points there and there are legal points. So legal points, anything that you're doing communication wise with your team absolutely should be be secure. So there we covered a bit of the HHS guidance that lets patients demand you use insecure methods of communication, which is fine for you talking to the patient. But there's really not a defensible circumstance under which you should talk to other healthcare providers or people on your team in a non-secure way. That's not really uh, a reasonable position to take. Okay, so so what I if
0: think the therapist says, um, "Well, but we only use uh, client initials when we're talking about them."
1: So it depends how you're doing it. I think one one thing that I find fascinating, you got to bear with me on this little exploration, but I think it's (laughs) worth it. Uh, People are always asking me, well, what if I store patient phone numbers in my cell phone contact book, but I just use patient initials, which I think is sort of what you're getting at or you're texting back and forth with someone and you're mentioning the initials or that kind of thing. Uh, Certainly better than the full name. The reason that people think like the contact book thing is okay is because if someone were to steal a phone and get into it, they would see just a bunch of random, you know, 10 digit numbers with uh, two letters associated. And there's presumably not much interpretable information there. But what people forget is that often other apps that they put on their phone will get access to the contact book. And sometimes there's a good reason for that. You know, you put on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or something and it asks you to look at your contact book so that it it can put you in touch. Yeah, with your whole professional network or whatever. It's it's convenient. It makes sense. But the job of those apps is literally to build a social network. They're yeah. supposed to look to see who do you know that other people know? How are you guys connected? Mm-hmm. So you know what you're going to look like in your therapist phone book? You're going to look like the hub yeah. of this network of 40 <laughs> wow. random people that's, that were not connected before. Yeah. So what can happen, and oh. there are articles and case reports about this, where patients of the same, you know, psychiatrist like or therapist or whatnot, yeah, are like recommended to each other as potential friends or yeah. connections. And then say that's that someone, interesting. yeah, someone sees oh. someone leaving your office, then, they, then their Facebook pops up their face later with a name boom, that is, that's peace. That is super easy
0: for that to happen. I can also tell you, um, you know, I have certainly saved a couple numbers of like longer term clients in my phone. Um, I I don't, don't do it, um, regularly, but I've certainly done it a couple of times without thinking about it. And then something as simple as like, I'll be on Venmo or something like that. And it's recommending my clients to me. Like, do you want to send, you know, money for food and drinks to this person or whatever? And, um, (laughs) It's it's amazing like how that information just gets shared implicitly through all through yeah. any type of app that's based on your social networks and um, or even Snapchat and they're recommending friends or people for you to follow like they're they're using those numbers and they're pulling those numbers from your phone and there isn't really an easy way to opt out of that stuff like you're agreeing to all the terms of an app like that so um, man that gets pretty hairy pretty fast.
1: Yeah, I just think it's, it's crucial to understand that what to humans is a random 10-digit number is a unique identifier yeah. to machines.
0: It's very useful for those, for those machines, for those apps. Um, they're going to leverage that, that, that data to, to try to connect more people.
1: Yeah, which is just sort of why it goes back to the point that I was just making about administrative safeguards, where an easy one you can do to just not like, tax your brain about this constantly is just keep a wall between contacts that yeah. you use personally and ones used professionally.
0: I think even we talk a lot about boundaries, you know, in our field because we have ongoing relationships with our clients or our patients. And we even, we have people who are dealing with pain and suffering and anxiety or even, um, more intense stuff like personality disorders. So I think just from, from a perspective of best practices and keeping your own healthy boundaries, it's good to keep this stuff separate, right? Or if anything happens to your personal phone, right? Or whatever is. there's just so many situations um, in, in which that information could be compromised. And I think there's even a mental benefit of just knowing that like all my work stuff is kind of over here. It's secured, it's in this app or it's in this place and I don't have to sweat it. Um, and you can yeah. kind of be one step removed. It's the same, it's the same effect of like when you're working in the ER, you don't, you don't, you know, go home with patient charts in your pocket (laughs) <laughs> you know, just because like, well, they're just here. I kind of got them if I need them, right? Um, I'm assuming you don't do that, but.
1: Uh, <laughs> I, I assuredly do not do not. But, but we kind of do that as therapists, you know, yeah.
0: because again, we're not working in these larger systems or especially an interesting thing is a lot of us don't work with insurance companies. So right. our systems are completely kind of autonomous from, um, from systems like that. So that, I think that poses even more risk to have your systems be just kind of totally loose and open.
1: Yeah, it's it definitely can be a tricky situation. Uh, again, I think it's it's the type of thing where you can sit down. I'll, I'll sit down with you and go through the weeds on every single aspect of your practice from, from a HIPAA angle. We'll decide, hey, if you don't deal with insurance, then maybe you don't even do any of the covered electronic transactions that make HIPAA apply to you. Maybe you're in a state that doesn't have excess privacy laws. So like, I'll yeah. go through every point with you, but it's going to take hours, right? Yeah. Or you could not do that, yeah. you know, adopt a platform. Again, I'm biased. I think Spruce is great, but there are other ones, too. Adopt a platform that has thought of these things from the beginning and gives you, like, brain-dead guidance on how to implement them yeah. and then just not lose hours of your time trying to understand HIPAA on a Ph.D. level.
0: Let me uh, – well, yeah, which you have clearly done to <laughs> yeah, impressive. Trying to. Trying to. <laughs> let me ask you this, David, and I think this is going to really capture a lot of um, our listeners situations right now for a therapist in private practice who currently communicates with their patients through Gmail. And then let's say for phone, it's Google voice grasshopper, or let's say um, sideline. What would you say to that person?
1: Yeah, I'd say they're, they're clearly making an effort and that's great. Uh, Let's talk about Google for a second. So, um, one thing that we talked about briefly was business associate agreements. That's the idea that any third party that you're using to transmit, store, create, there's a couple other verbs the government gives. Any of your PHI, mm-hmm. you want to have a business associate agreement with that company. That's a set of what the government terms written assurances. And that's just basically that
0: Google that Google won't take my patient information and do something with it or sell it or or, or whatever
1: yeah they're they're basically agreeing to shoulder the same requirements under HIPAA as you have so that you can meet their obligations your patient's obligations via that company so Google will now sign a business associate agreement with you and so I think that if you're going to use something like Gmail or whatnot you want to sign up for G Suite which is the paid version and they will give you a business associate agreement that's a great start now I do want to say that almost everyone misunderstands that agreement to a degree, because if you read it closely and you read their uh, HIPAA compliance with G Suite, like implementation guide, you will understand that it is limited for technologies like email. And that's not Google being shady. That's Google uh, just embracing the nature of things they can't control. They can control your data when it resides on their servers. If you're mailing people within your organization, they can control the transport of that email. All of those things are covered under the BAA. However, as soon as you send an email outside of the Google ecosystem, they lose control over that. And email in its nature is not always encrypted in its transmission. It does not have identifiable sort of verifications on the sender or the recipient, which is another set of technical requirements in HIPAA. Uh, And you don't know how it's going to be stored when it gets to the patient. And and Google has like a, uh, I forget what they call the page right offhand, but they've got a report basically on how much of their outbound and inbound email they're able to fully secure for transmission. And it's only about... 90% 90% these days, there's still one in 10 various other email providers that are not implementing modern email technologies. Right. So, and, and HIPAA in their compliance guide, I, I just pulled this up while we, while we were chatting here that says, if an end user wants to use the HIPAA included functionality, that's the Gmail, to share PHI with a third party meaning or a third party application, meaning someone else's email. Some of the services may make it technically possible to do so. That is their wording. What they mean is, yeah, we'll allow you to mail people that aren't within Google, of course, because it's email. However, it is the customer's responsibility to ensure that appropriate HIPAA compliant measures are in place with any third party before sharing or transmitting PHI. Gotcha. Customers are solely responsible for determining if they require a BAA, et cetera, it goes on. But the point is, you you can see that's the clutch paragraph there. That's the crux. They're basically saying, hey, it's email. If you want to send an email that's insecure, that's your business. Yep. But that is no longer covered under this BAA. Okay. So some it. people will sign up for Gmail G Suite with a BAA and think they can do whatever they want with email. You can't. And then Google Voice is not covered under the G Suite BAA, as are many other Google services, like the Google Contact book, not yeah. covered under the BAA. Yep. And as soon as you're storing voicemails or that kind of thing, with, uh, or texts with Google Voice, that's, they don't consider that covered data at all. Okay. And I'm gonna assume it's the same for services like Grasshopper or Sideline potentially the thing is i'm i'm not sure for all of them whether they sign a baa they okay. need to if they don't if they don't sign a baa for sure it's a problem okay got it but if they do you have to look at it and make sure that those things are covered okay got it <laughs> Well, David. Um, yeah, man.
0: We could talk for hours about about this stuff. <laughs> and I think you know part of the challenge is like giving therapists enough information to figure out okay, what are my like what are the gaps in what I'm currently doing? What are my risks? Yeah. And what can I do to mitigate those risks that also doesn't cost me an arm and a leg, right? So sure. And I think the other reality is therapists really vary. Um, across the spectrum in terms of their anxiety about this stuff, right, their anxiety about security and HIPAA. Um, and so um, – but at the end of the day, I think we all, we all need a solution that works. And something that I really like about Spruce is that it's really a comprehensive system to me. I mean, you can have um, – you can have an EHR or something in our field like simple practice or whatever where you're managing your patient notes and whatnot, but you can't communicate with your patients through that so um, or your, your team members either. So, um, But walk us through real quick, we've got a couple minutes left, just a kind of high-level view of the features that Spruce offers and what makes it this kind of comprehensive communication platform.
1: Sure. Uh, well, I'd say on the provider side, when you log in and that can be either through the web interface, so you could be sitting at your desktop computer or it's native apps on iOS and Android. So it can be you know on the go on your phone, you log in and what you see looks like your messaging inbox. It's a bunch of patient threads. And we can you can tag them like emails, uh, you know on Gmail, so you can tag like this patient is. Uh, diabetic or this one has bipolar or you know these patients are ones that I haven't seen in a year you can tag them However, you want you can bring up different views of your patient panel And then from within that thread view which everyone on your team can see so you have coordinated Communication with your team members and collaboration over everyone you can go into a patient thread And then you can start communicating with that patient however you want out of one place. If you want to start a video visit, you can do that there. If you want to text them a regular SMS text, you can do that. If you want to send them a secure message, same place. Uh, They have to have the app on their phone for that, but it's all in the same place. If you want to call them, standard phone call, that's in the same place. It's basically a one-stop shop, and the app has security on it you know so if you're already logged into the phone and you give it to your kid to play with or that kind of thing they can't get into your professional stuff and neither can anyone else and we store yeah and we store our own independent internal contact books so you can keep everyone's name without resorting to initials and that kind of thing you can keep their email addresses and their phone numbers and all that stuff Uh, and it's all stored securely on the cloud so you don't have to worry about device theft because you know No one's going to be able to pull any specific uh, health information off of your phone directly. That's great. Yeah. So that's kind of the the broad overview. And if you want to communicate with your team, just like you tag someone on Facebook or Twitter, you can send an internal message in a patient thread. So if you're talking to someone, you know, they need a prescription or something, you can switch to an internal note and tag your front office staff to get in touch with their psychiatrist or whoever else and say like, hey, I think this patient needs like a med adjustment or, or whatever else it is. And that way you've got this longitudinal, you know, time based record of care that we treat. Everything on Spruce is a medical record and we preserve it as such. So you can look back and you can see not just what you said to the patient and what they said to you and when you had phone calls and all that other stuff, but you can see a longitudinal record of all the care that your team provided to in a collaborative sense.
0: Very cool. I I love it. Again, I just, like I said, when I stumbled across Spruce last summer, I was like, wow, this is super impressive. And I can't wait till uh, (laughs) more therapists find out about you guys. Um, It's just, it's one of those things, right? Like therapists just need to know enough about HIPAA, about security, about how they're communicating with patients, and then leave the rest to, I think, folks like you who who go deep into this stuff. And, And you take all the technical stuff and figure out, okay, what do practitioners need to know? What's a good solution for them, and then kind of move on with your life and just trust that everything's covered when you, you know, when you invest in, in a platform like yours. So, I just love it. And again, for our listeners, I encourage you guys to just check it out. Um, well, David, with that being said, where where should folks go to find out more
1: about Spruce? Uh, so our website's a good spot, uh, sprucehealth.com. That'll tell you feature sets and that kind of thing, and you can sign up for an account there. Uh, we we basically have recently especially started embracing the therapist market and we have a solo practitioner price plan that i think is super attractive Uh, if you want to learn more about hipaa and kind of my brainstormings on stuff then check out our blog that's blog.sprucehealth.com i have at this point probably 10 or 15 articles on various hipaa topics and so if you want to know the deep dive on the stuff that we just talked about that's a great spot to check And then, uh, John, we've got a, a, a promo program for, for listeners on this podcast. If you go to sprucehealth.com slash PPW, that'll, uh, that'll give you the direct links to our, I think it's a 20% off uh, promotional campaign and, uh, and give you an idea of how specifically we can benefit therapists on the platform.
0: Cool. It's thank, thank you for that. This is, this is just great stuff. And I'm so excited for you all to, um, again, just interface more with therapists. And I think therapists are going to be super impressed and relieved to find, um, a platform where they, that can really kind of do it all for them. Um, well, David, Hey, thanks again so much for being here. I, I, I so appreciate it. And I know our listeners do as well. And, um, yeah, keep, keep up the good work.
1: <laughs> thanks, John. You too. Take care. All right. All right. Bye-bye.
0: All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know there was a lot of technical stuff in there and it could have been overwhelming at times, but, um, you know, hopefully toward the end there, we got to the really critical takeaways from today's interview. And hopefully you can understand a little bit better now what your own risk is in terms of the way you are communicating with clients and internally on your team uh, in your private practice. So, like David said, you can get a discount for Spruce Health. I highly recommend their platform at sprucehealth.com forward slash ppw. Again, sprucehealth.com forward slash ppw. All right, that's it for this time, and I'll see you next time.